Good evening, everybody. So many cute comments on the way in. As it's pouring outside, the real marble. We're having a 4D class this evening. All dimensions of reality and experience. Special thank you to Michal Mursky for spearheading this. Shkoyach to Michal. And a special thank you to Jonathan for bringing the pastries and getting the, uh, the tech set up. We are running late this evening. What I'd like to do is try to go straight for a little while with no questions, try to cover some ground and, and develop the, uh, some of the basic themes. We do have a mixed audience, both gender but also levels of... of uh, learning and background. Some people were in yeshiva for many years, some people were not. So we're going to hold back the questions for now and maybe save that towards the end. The goal of this series in general is to try and share powerful and relevant ideas that we could glean from the Parsha, try to uncover some of the hidden themes that are kind of shrouded in mystery, and then I think the most important thing is try to bring it all home. How can we take these lessons and apply it to our lives to make us better people and better Ovdei Hashem? The goal tonight is threefold. Number one is I'd like to gain some clarity in the background leading up to the, uh, the devastation of the Mabul, the great catastrophe that took place thousands of years ago, destroying humanity. And number two is I'd like to gain a better understanding of who Noah was, getting an appreciation of his personality, some of his struggles, some of his accomplishments. And number three is to explore how we can make these ideas relevant to our lives. Somebody asked me a question many years ago. Rabbi, you're, you're religious, right? Yes, I am. I try to be. Are you orthodox? So I said jokingly, I'm ultra-orthodox. So he said to me with a smile, do you really believe in the story of Noah and the ark? Come on, you really believe that God sent a big flood and Noah built a big boat with all the animals? Do you really believe that? The question to that answer is, yes and no. And I'd like to explain. Yes, we have two interesting articles here, one from a Smithsonian Magazine and one from the book A History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. And going through a little bit of the history of the discoveries regarding Noah and the Teva, the Ark of Noah, uh, there have been stories of a massive flood that we find in many different civilizations, many different cultures, in different regions of the world going back to the prehistoric world, from the ancient Greeks to the uh, tribal groups in Australia, in India and in Polynesia and Tibet and Kashmir and Lithuania. All these stories of this great destructive flood. It wasn't though until 1872 that a fellow by the name of Dr. George Smith, who was only 32 at the time, he was working in the British Museum on the second floor. He dropped out of school when he was 14, didn't have much of a real education, but he was more of a, of a self-made scholar. And he was going through thousands of little pieces of clay tablets 
And among them, there were different random stories and things dating back thousands of years BCE. And he happened upon a little tablet, and he was trying to decipher it. He himself could read some of it. He had to have help from, from peers to help read the rest. But there in a the tablet, he came across a story that would astonish the Western world. And he read of a flood, and a ship caught on a mountain, and a bird that was sent out in search of dry land. So that was the first real confirmation of this story that dates back thousands of years. In the 1920s, a fellow by the name of Dr. Charles Woolley excavated the ancient city of Ur, and Ur we know is in the Torah itself, Ur Kasdim, and he found a deposit of about 10 feet rich in marine fossils dating back again to several thousand years BCE. Clear indication that there was some kind of massive flood in that region. In 1965, the British Museum identified two more tablets from ancient Babylonian times, also depicting the, the story of the flood. And then in 1987, in Paul Johnson's book, A History of the Jews, he has a whole paragraph there, and he writes, there can now be no doubt that some kind of huge flood did take place in Mesopotamia. So do we believe it happened? The answer is yes. How it happened is a whole different story. I want to share with you two paragraphs from the Ramban. The first is the Ramban in his commentary in the beginning of Bereshis, in the beginning of the Torah, where he tells us that Maisa Bereshis, the whole story of the creation, is a sod omuk, it's a deep secret. Eino muvan minimikros, and it could not be understood by reading the verses. See, generally we have a principle when it comes to learning Torah. That's the amazing thing about Torah study. You could be five years old and learning the story of, of Lech Lecha and Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov, and you'll gain something from it. And you could be 85 years old and learning those exact same stories, but with a whole different understanding in Torah Shabal Peh with the Midrashim and the Talmud and the Kabbalah. But generally we say, Ein mikra yotzi midei pshuta, which means there's always a superficial understanding. There's obviously layers and layers of truth beneath that, but there's always the basic pshat, the basic understanding. Says the Ramban, when it comes to the first two parshios in the Torah, parshas Bereshis and parshas Noach, there is no superficial understanding. You could read those verses at face value and have pretty much no clue what actually transpired. Who knows, says the Ramban, There's a Mesorah, there's a tradition of people who have, been, who have access to Kabbalistic secrets and they have inside information. However, But those who know can't share it with us. It's the famous line that those who know don't tell, and those who tell don't know. Says the Ramban further, that the story of what took place on the first day and the second day and all the days of creation, and the lengthy explanation of the creation of Adam and Chava, and their sin and their punishment and their banishment from the Garden of Eden, all of these stories, we do not have a complete understanding when reading it superficially. And here's the key line at the very end of Source 3. And for sure, when it comes to the story of the flood, 
And at the very end of Parshas Noach, the story of the Tower of Babel, says the Ramban, we have no clue what's going on. He elaborates on this theme in Parshas Noach. He's bothered by the question, if Noach and his family and the animals were actually on this boat for an entire year, and that's clear from the Talmud that was the case, how do you have enough space? How do you have enough food? How does this really work? Now, I've seen different equations. If it's 300 amos by, by 50 and by 30, and theoretically every room was 10 by 10, and the, the different calculations that are made to conjecture how maybe it could have actually taken place, but the Ramban held, there's no way it happened al piderechateva, which means there's no way it took place in a natural in a natural way that we're accustomed to. The whole thing was lamalam and a teva, the whole experience of Noah and the teva and the animals. We believe there was a massive flood that destroyed humanity. We believe that all of the life, the, the animals were somehow saved through this teva. How it happened, we don't know. We weren't there and we can't even make a movie of how it looked. That's the approach of the Ramban. To answer the question, did it really happen? The answer is... Yes, how it happened, we don't know. The main question is, according to the Ramban, if we don't really understand the first two partios of the Torah, and only a select group of people who know the secrets of Kabbalah, they're privy to that information, what's the point of having it in the Torah? The Torah was meant for all of Klal Yisrael, for the entire Jewish people. So the basic answer would be, although we might not know what exactly is happening when you read the verses superficially, the goal is not to have a clear picture of what happened. The goal is to learn. The Torah is Torah's Chaim, it's instructions for living. So the point of these stories is to let us know that historically things did take place. Can you picture what actually happened? No, you weren't there, and you're not part of that special group that has Kabbalistic secrets. But we have to learn from every step, from every conversation, from the dialogue. There's life lessons, and that's the reason why it's in the Torah. I once read, there's a book, Choose Life, by Rabbi Israel Tauber, Holocaust survivor. That was actually probably the first Jewish book I ever read cover to cover. I was 12, 13 years old. And in that book, he gives an analogy he says, if you were to picture the, the New York Public Library, right now there are over 53 million books in the New York Public Library. Do you know how much space that takes up? If you were speaking to somebody 50 years ago, and you were to explain to them that out of those 53 million books, and therefore we have this massive building to store all of these volumes, in 50 years from now, or in 75 years from now, you'll have something this big, less than an inch by an inch, that could store all of that information. They would look at you and they would say, you are crazy. How, how do you smush it down to such a small little thing? The answer is, they have no hasoga, they had no understanding of what technology could create. Says Rabbi Tabor, the same thing is true when we try to picture how did it work with all those people and all those animals and such a small teva. We can't picture how it actually fit together. Somehow Hashem orchestrated it. That's some of the background in the destruction of the Mabel. 
I'd like to address now, why did Hashem do this? Why did Hashem destroy the entire world? So in source number 5, we read from the beginning of Parshas Noach, where the Torah tells us that Hashem looked at the earth, and he saw that it was destroyed, it was corrupt. That all of the flesh had corrupted itself on the face of the earth. And Rashi tells us, that's actually alluding to two separate issues, two problems that were rampant. Number one was gezel, that people had no respect for other people's property. If I wanted something, I would take it. And number two was excessive taiva. Life was controlled by what feels right. If it feels right, just do it. And the more one lives his life with that mindset, and the less restrictions we have, because we don't need all these, these superimposed guidelines of what to do and what not to do. If it feels right, if that's how you identify yourself, then that's who you are. Just go with it. That was the mindset of the world pre the Mabul. So those are two issues that Rashi points out. People had no respect for other people's property, and at the same time you had a world that has gone mad with the explosion of taiva of physical desire. And the Gemara is bothered by a question. It makes sense that God would destroy humanity. They messed up. Let's start over again. New game. But why would He destroy the entire world? The poor animals! All those little deer, little bambies running around? Why would you kill the animals? That's the Gemara's question. Now the Midrash comes along and has an interesting answer. The Midrash in source number 8 tells us, if you read the verses carefully, the Torah never says that human beings were corrupt. Rather it says, Ki kol basar, that all of the flesh, everything that was alive on planet earth, was somehow corrupt. The Midrash goes on to explain that even in the animal kingdom, you had species that were intermingling with each other. A dog species and a wolf species, things that would never happen on Pider Chatava. That was not the natural course of, of biology. But somehow, even the animal kingdom was corrupt. And that's why everything had to be destroyed, and we're going to start over from scratch. Now, how does that work? It's one thing for a human being. We have Bechira, we have free will, we can make poor decisions, we can live a life void of, of morality, but how do animals choose to do something like that? It's a very strange thing. So I think if we look in the physical world, the physical world we know there's cause and effect. When things happen, it's not a punishment, but this is the way things work. In the Cambridge English Dictionary that has over 1.5 billion words and phrases, and there's a phrase that's become popular in the last 10, 15 years, which is environmental footprint. What is the environmental footprint? The effect that a person, company, or activity has on the environment. For example, the amount of natural resources that they use and the amount of harmful gases they produce. That's one's environmental footprint. And we know the big discussion is with climate change and global warming, and we hear a lot about the, uh, the green gas, the greenhouse gas issue. What does that mean, the greenhouse gases? What are they doing and where do they come from? 
So those who have studied it, and we're not going to get into different opinions on the subject, happens to be one of those funny things where an issue that is really a scientific issue has now become a political issue. But we're not going to go anywhere close to there. But the basic science of it is that we have the, uh, the sunlight that passes through the atmosphere and warms the earth. Now, the earth doesn't just absorb that sunlight, but this heat is radiated back, back into space. The problem is, when you have this heat that should be going back into space, and it gets caught, though, in these greenhouse gas molecules that are keeping that heat within the atmosphere, that's how we have this phenomenon called global warming or climate change. Now, let's just say that human beings are to, to blame for this reality, or at least partially. The fact that we're using too much too much of, of, the, of all those chemicals that are polluting the atmosphere, that are keeping the, the heat within the atmosphere, and now the, the earth is getting warmer, is that a punishment to humanity? It's not a punishment. That's, that's the reality. There's cause and effect. Same thing is true in the spiritual world, and this is really an amazing idea. That just like in the physical world we have behaviors that could have global ramifications, the same thing is true in the spiritual world. Our actions, the actions of humanity, not the animal kingdom, but the actions of human beings have a direct impact on the entire creation. In the writings of the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lozato, number 11, he speaks about this idea. He says, if you look deeper into the matter, you will see that this world was created for man's use. But behold, man stands in a great balance, for he is drawn after the world and distances from his creator. Behold, he corrupts himself and corrupts the world with him. Meaning to say that if we live in distraction and we're not focused on what are we doing here, what's our purpose, what's our mission, so I'm not only bringing myself down, but I could bring the world down with me. My action or inaction has an impact on everything around me. But if he rules over himself and he clings to his creator and uses the world only as an aid to serve his creator, then he elevates himself and he elevates the world around him. For creatures are greatly elevated when they serve the Adam HaSholem, when they serve the human being who is only utilizing the world for his service of God. This is the Midrashic source that the Ramchal quotes. He says, as soon as Hashem created Adam, the first human being, he took him around the entire Garden of Eden, and he said to him, look at how beautiful and excellent my works are. Everything I've created, I've created for you. Be careful that you do not become corrupt. Don't destroy my world. So what we do, the decisions that we make, the Bechira, the free will that we utilize, that has an impact on the entire Bria, on everything around us. So the Beis HaLevi and others explain, that's what happened leading up to the times of the Great Destruction. Because humanity was so corrupt, because we had no moral guidelines, that had this hashba, that had this influence, even on the animal kingdom. That changed the world, that changed the avira. The whole atmosphere was different. That's why the earth had to be destroyed, and we had to start all over again. It's a story of a particular rabbi, I forget who it was, but he was driving, and whenever he was in the backseat of the car and he had someone driving him, 
he would always have his head buried in, in a book. He would never look outside, he didn't know what he was going to see. So he had a, a Talmud with him, always learning. And it happens to be they're going through Brooklyn, and they were passing by an area that, that wasn't, so, wasn't so nice. There were things outside that a holy rabbi doesn't want to see. Now there were three people sitting in the back with him, and they saw the entire time his head was like this, he couldn't see very well, his glasses were off, looking into the Gemara, and as they drove into that area, he said, where are we? Can we please, can we please go somewhere else? He didn't see outside the window, but, but he felt it. Sometimes if you go into an area that's porutz, that has no guidelines in a certain aspect of morality, you could almost feel that tendency drawing you in. As an example, you go to Las Vegas, not to put down the entire city of Las Vegas, but I'm sure if you go to certain places in Las Vegas, even if I'm careful, I have my kosher food with me, and I'm only going to be going to the, uh, the zoo, I'm not going to be going into the casinos, but there's a, there's a hargasha, there's a feeling that draws you in, because human behavior in any place changes the whole atmosphere of the place. That's why the entire world had to have a restart. That was the restart button. I'd like to delve into the personality of Noah. Now the Zohar tells us, and this is the Hebrew translation of the Zohar, uh, you don't have this on your sheets, but I'll just read it to you, it's one line. Chacham haya, that Noah was a very wise person. And Noah would understand the language or the communication of all creations. It sounds like not only animal kingdom, but even the, the trees and the flowers and the blossoms. Noah was in tune with nature to the extent that he understood the communication between everything in nature. So in a sense, he was the man for the job. Not only do we find in number 13, this is the famous verse in the very beginning of the Parsha, where it says, Eila told us Noach, Noach ish tzaddik, Noach was a righteous man, tomim hayabaderosav, he was pure. We've spoken about in the past the, the connotation of tamim. Tamim means he was wholesome, he had everything. He was living with bitachon, with clarity, that Hashem was in total control of the world. He was in a different dimension than everyone else in his generation. But he also understood the animal kingdom very well. I think I shared this before. A couple of years ago, I was speaking to someone, later 70s, and he was telling me a story about his daughter. His daughter had a dog that she was very, very close to for many years. And the dog was 14, 15 years old and passed away. Had a good long life. And, uh, and she had a very hard time getting over it. You know, the word in Hebrew for dog is kelev. Kelev, it's like the heart. There could be a real connection between a human being and, and a dog. And she herself wasn't married, didn't have a family, and then there was a real loss. So she actually looked up a dog whisperer. And as he's telling me the story, I begin to chuckle. A dog what? A dog whisperer. So there are people out there that at least claim to have the power to be able to communicate with animals even ones who were no longer living, surprisingly enough. Now this story was actually somewhat scary because this person called up the, the owner of the dog, the dog who passed away, and, uh, and she told her, I have a feeling from Sophia that 
she wants you to get some kind of silver necklace with a little bow on it to remind her, to remind you of her. And she almost dropped the phone. She said, just last night I was actually online looking at little dog necklaces to purchase to remind me of her. So I don't know. <laughs> and it, it could be there's something, you know, uh, wrong in the story. But, uh, but Noah was the real deal. Noah was the real deal. And the Zohar tells us as well, this is source number 14, that Noah was living in this corrupt world. He saw the destructive ways of humanity and isolated himself in order not to be swept along with society. He immersed himself in the Vodas Hashem through delving into the writings. You think back, what did they learn in those times? They didn't have the classic Talmud that we do. They don't have Baba Kama and Baba Metzia. The writings that Noah immersed himself in, says the Zohar, were the writings of Adam and Hanoch, of the earlier generations. Learning from them how to totally devote himself to Vodas Hashem, to the service of Hashem. So he understood that he was living in a world that was totally insane, and therefore he felt the best option was to hide away, to isolate himself, to live as a hermit. And that's what he did. Now it seems like that was the right move, because the Rambam tells us that if you're living in a society where people are not doing the right thing, people are not behaving with, with morals and ethics, then the right move is Yisrachek mina rishoyim. Separate yourself from those people who are living in darkness and try to find a place where people are living according to the Torah, according to the values of Judaism. And if all the places in the world are corrupt, writes the Rambam, just like in our times, he lived in the 1100s, just like in our times, if every society is corrupt, then you have to live by yourself. And let's say you're living in a world where they won't allow you to live by yourself. They're going to force you to assimilate. Lahavdil, they won't allow you to wear the burqa in public. Or they won't allow you to wear the yarmulke in public. Lahavdil. So what do you do then? Then, says the Rambam, you have to leave society. You have to become Henry David Thoreau and live in Walden's Pond. Or in the words of the Rambam, you have to go to the forests or to the desert and live there in isolation. So Noah seems to be following the instructions of the Rambam. It was a disgusting world and therefore he chose to live alone. However, we do find that he's taken to task and he's criticized. He's compared to Avraham and he's also compared to Moshe. The first source, number 16, where he's compared to Avraham the, uh, the Midrash tells us that when the Torah informs us, Esalakim his halich Noach, that Noach walked with God, his halich is in the reflexive, which means Noach was supported by Hashem. Although he was a righteous man, he was tomim, he was whole, and he, he was living with bitachon, but he needed Hashem's support. In contrast to what we find regarding Avraham, where Hashem comes to Avraham and he says, Walk in front of me. He's halech lefanai Walk in front of me and you will be pure. Avraham didn't need Hashem as a crutch. Avraham had either the courage or the character or the personality or the wellspring of Torah to be able to face the world 
and not run away from society, but try to transform and uplift society. So that's the contrast between Noah and Avraham. We find as well, you go to number 18, another Midrashic source, that this is talking about when Noah gets off the Teva a year later. The, uh, the Torah tells us, V'yochel Noah isha dama, Noah, who's now known as the man of the earth, he begins to plant a vineyard. So the Midrash points out, Noah started off with the title, Noah Ish Tzadik. Noah was a righteous man. Where else in the entirety of Tanakh do you find that title of a Tzadik? So we refer to Yosef as Yosef HaTzadik. Where in Tanakh does it say anything about Yosef being the Tzadik? It doesn't say it anywhere. The only time we have the Tanakh itself giving us the description, he was a Tzadik. That's regarding Noah. So he starts off as Noah Ish Tzadik, and then at the end, after everything he goes through, and all the turmoil, and all the psychological upheaval, he comes into this new destroyed world, and he's now called Ish Adama, a man of the earth. So what happened to Noah? In contrast to Moshe. Moshe starts off, in the early years of Moshe, when he runs away to Midian, he's described as an Ish Mitzri, the Egyptian. The Egyptians saved my life. However, later on, at the end of the Torah, Moshe is called Ish HaElokim. He was a man of God. So we see Noah starts off here, but there's some level of descent. Moshe Rabbeinu starts off as an Ish Mitzri, as an Egyptian, and at the end of his life, he's Ish HaElokim, he's a man of God. What happened to Noah? Now the Zohar gives us a little bit of a clue. And the Zohar has some pretty harsh things to say about Noah once he gets off the boat. This is source number 19. Noah gets off the boat, and you can really picture yourself. And it's hard to do, because like we said before, we can't really picture what happened or what that experience in the Teva was. But imagine yourself now walking off that Teva onto dry land, seeing devastation. It's, it's after the, the, the atomic bomb. There's nothing here. So Noah does what I think most human beings would probably do. He breaks down. He starts crying. He can't handle it. He's overwhelmed by it. And he turns to God, and what seems to be a righteous statement, he says, Ribona Shalola, master of the universe, you're called compassionate. People call you a compassionate God. So you should have been compassionate for your creation. Where were you? What a righteous person standing up for the people. What's the response of Hashem? Hashem responded and said, Roa Shota, you foolish shepherd. Now you say this? Why didn't you say this at the time that I told you originally that you were righteous and you stand alone? Why didn't you say this when I told you that I was going to destroy all of humanity? Where were you then, Noah? And I constantly delayed. Why did I have you build the boat and go through all of this fanfare of having animals come marching in two by two or seven by seven? What was the point of that? The Ramban explains, it was to make a scene. It was that every one of the times should be talking about the big boat in Noah's backyard and all of the animals and why does it smell so bad around here? Aren't there some kind of zoning codes that would prevent such a thing? 
Hashem wanted to make this the talk of the town in order for you to approach people and help them do tshuva to save humanity. Noach, it's too late. You should have spoke up then. Imagine that level of harata, that level of, of regret and guilt that Noah had, realizing Hashem is now informing you that potentially you could have stopped this. You could have saved humanity. Where were you? That's hard to get over. And the question I like to jump into for a moment is, if Noah was truly righteous, he was an ish tzaddik, tamim haya so why didn't he step in? Why didn't he try his best to save people? Where were you? So the Zohar told us elsewhere, well, he was living in isolation. He didn't want to be influenced. But God is now telling you, you should have tried. You should have spoken to people. Why didn't he try? The strange thing is the Talmud actually tells us he did try. The Talmud in source number 20 says that Noah the righteous, he went around to the people of his time, and he rebuked them. And he told them things that were as harsh as fire, as torches. So he did go around. He did warn people. He was speaking about it. It was fire and brimstone. He was standing up on a little soapbox in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And he was yelling at them, You're all going to die! And they were laughing at him. The Talmud goes on to explain. They looked at him and they said back, Old fool, who do you think you are? There's a flood? Don't worry, what's the flood made out of? If it's made out of fire, we have the alita. We all know the alita is one of the, the new forms of technology. It's fireproof. And if the flood is of water, no problem as well. We have iron plates and that could prevent any flooding from water. We have irrigation systems. We could, we could, uh, we could survive that. And if he brings from the heavens, we have something called Akev, which is another great device that we have. We don't need you and your God. Old foolish man, leave us alone. So it's clear from the Talmud, Noah tried very hard to convince the people of his time. He was out there preaching. They didn't listen. They were making fun of him. They were mocking him. So if that was the case, why does the Zohar tell us that Hashem had a complaint against Noah? Where were you, Noah? Noah should have responded back, Where was I? I was doing my part. I was trying to save humanity. And they, they ridiculed me. They wouldn't listen. Don't blame me. It's true I was living in isolation. Like the Rambam teaches us, sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes sheltering yourself and the family is the, is the most healthy thing to do. But I was also out there trying to convince people they were wrong and they didn't listen to me. So what did Noah do wrong? I have to tell the line. A couple years ago, I was giving a class, and I made a brach of shahakol. So someone says, I hate to interrupt, but just a quick question, Rabbi. How do you have real kavana when you say a brach of shahakol? So I answered, if you're saying the brach in front of 40 people, you can have a lot of kavana. That's the... <laughs> That's the question though. What did Noah do wrong? The Talmud tells us clearly he was out and about trying to convert the people. The answer is found in the writings of the Sforno. The Sforno was one of the great Torah commentators, lived in the early 1500s. And he has just a couple lines here, but I think this gives us an insight into the personality of Noah, 
where he was thriving, where he was excelling, but also the flaw, the, 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 the hurdle he couldn't get over. Says the Svorno, this is the bold and underlined, V'chein Noach, Afalpi Shochiach, Al-Masim HaMukukolim, Inyan HaMedinos. It's true that Noah did give rebuke. He went around criticizing the society, trying to help them. But what did he not do? He didn't teach them how to know Hashem. How to follow in his ways. Although he was a righteous, pure person, both in thought and deed, he didn't teach the world to follow in the ways of the infinite. So there you have it. He was criticizing, he was rebuking, he was chastising, but the one thing he didn't do was just teach humanity how to behave. Help them understand and appreciate our perspective of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And maybe they're so anti-religion because they think it's foolish. You know what? It is foolish. In their warped perspective of whatever it is they think you're preaching, it's silly and it's childish. Teach them, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Teach them the Darche Hashem. Why didn't Noach teach them that? Why was he so focused on criticizing and rebuking and the fire and brimstone speeches? Why didn't Noach get it? And I think this gives us the insight into who Noach was. He believed in Hashem wholeheartedly. He was a man of faith. He didn't lack faith in Hashem. But he did lack faith in humanity. He didn't get out there trying to teach him Darche Hashem, the ways of the infinite, how to be compassionate, how to be sensitive, how to be caring, how to be selfless, how to be loving. He didn't want to waste his time with that because he thought they wouldn't be receptive. They don't care about these types of things. They're so boorish. They're so barbaric. They're not going to be receptive to this kind of speech. Noah had faith in Hashem but he was lacking faith in humanity. There's a conversation that takes place between Avraham and one of the sons of Noah. We know that Noah had three sons. Shem was the, the, uh, the son that was the, the source of Klal Yisrael. And the Midrash records a conversation that takes place between Avraham and Malki Tzedek. That was another name for Shem. Avraham comes to Shem and asks him the question, what did you guys do to be deserving to get off the boat? What schus did you have? What merit did you have? So Malki Tzedek says back to Avraham, well, it's, it's quite simple. The entire reality of living in that teva, in that supernatural existence, it was an ongoing 24-7 exercise of chesed. We were there to serve. That's all we were doing. Now, we were serving animals, but it was an exercise in chesed. That's what we did to deserve getting off the boat. It was at that time, we all know, looking in hindsight, Avraham was the paradigm of chesed. In, in, in the Sviros and all the Kabbalistic literature, Avraham represents that selfless chesed for others where did he get it from? 
What was his inspiration? It was this conversation. Avraham said to himself, if helping out animals, if caring for creatures that don't have a neshama like we do, there's a life source, there's something there, but they don't have a neshama, they're not made in the image of Hashem. If that could transform you to the extent that that could save you and bring you out of your teva, then helping our fellow human beings who are created in the image of God, that could take us out of our own teva. That could take us out of our own bubble of selfishness and create a whole new realm of giving, of hatava, of loving. That was the motivation of Avram. Now it's a strange question he was asking Shem. What did you do to deserve getting off the boat? What do you mean? We were placed on the boat to save us, and the goal of that salvation was eventually to get off the boat and to restart humanity. We were the restart button. What was Avraham's question? So Chaim Friedlander, who is the great Mashkiach of Panovich, he explains, Avraham wasn't asking, what did you do to deserve getting off the boat? He was asking, I understand that Hashem could have saved you in billions and billions of ways. Why did he choose this particular avenue? This whole strange thing with you and the supernatural teva, taking care of animals, what was the intent of Hashem? And to that, Malkit Tzedek said back to Avram, the intent was to train us in chesed. The flaw of humanity pre-flood, before the Mabla was, we said two things. They were stealing from each other, and there was a lack of morality. What do those two things stem from? The same shorish, the same root, which is, it's all about me. It's all about me. To start the new world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had in mind, we need to start the world, Olam Chesed Yibane. We have to build it from Chesed. That's why you have to be here in this experience, in this reality for a year, creating a lifestyle of chesed, and with that mantra, you'll go into the new world. That's how we have to begin again. So what we've accomplished tonight is, we've seen a little bit of the background information to the Mabul. We've discussed the approach of the Ramban, where although we believe wholeheartedly it did take place, we cannot picture it. The point of these two parshios, Parshas Bereshis and Parshas Noach in the Torah, is that we could learn from the discussions, learn from the dialogue, learn from every letter and every word in the Torah to apply it to our lives. In analyzing the personality of Noach, we've established that of course he was a righteous man. He did the right thing by hiding himself and by sheltering himself. And I think that's one lesson right there. Oftentimes people will say, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to shelter my kids from the normal, regular world? And the answer oftentimes is, yes! If the world is crazy, then you have to shelter your children. Now obviously, how you do that is an individual question you have to explore. But that has to be part of a healthy diet of Judaism. If I want to raise my kids having any semblance of a connection with authentic Torah, with the wisdom, with the values, with the hadracha, with the guidance of Torah, then we have to take Noach's advice. We have to build the teva to some extent. You have to shelter your children. That's a healthy and the necessary thing to do. I think it's one lesson we could walk away with. When it comes to the personality of Noach, though, we did see this flaw, that he was lacking a belief not in Hashem, but a belief in humanity. We can't lack a belief in humanity. And uh, the sad thing, when we look at news, 
is that everything on the news is always negative and it's always depressing to the point where you can't have your children look at any regular news station because it will freak them out for the next 10 years. Did somebody really do that? No, no, that's just a story that didn't really happen. The world is, is, is constantly bombarded with these stories. And, and often we do lose hope in humanity. I think one of the main messages that we could take from Noah is that we could never do that. Because as soon as we lose hope that people could change, or perhaps even more importantly, that I could change, I'll never change. If I ever want to transform somebody else, the first step is I have to believe they could transform themselves. Now, we don't try to change people. We try to inspire. We try to encourage. We try to support. When it comes to children, we try to mold them to the best of our abilities. But if they don't get the sense that we believe in them, no matter what we say, it will not have any lasting impact. People have to know that you believe in me in order for me to thrive and maximize my potential. This is the message of the rainbow. The rainbow is such a strange, esoteric, divine sign. Where Hashem tells Noah, don't worry about humanity being destroyed. It's never going to happen again. And the proof to that is, ta-da, the rainbow. <laughs> now when you read that superficially, it sounds like at that point in time, God invented the rainbow. Says the Ramban, the only problem with that is, this is probably not true. Right, the rainbow, I have even here some of the basics from, from Wikipedia. How does a rainbow work? Sunlight is a mixture of colors, which is the most amazing thing in the world. When you look at the sun or any source of light, it's just bright and it's yellow or it's white. But really, there's a mix of colors within that light. When it pa passes through a prism, a glass prism, so then the light is bent or it's refracted. When it's refracted, that's when you see some of the colors coming out of the ore, coming out of the light. The raindrops, they act like miniature prisms. So when you have rain, and now the rainstorm is, is on its way out, but you still have some moisture in the air, so they work to, reflect, to refract the light. So now we have all these beautiful colors, the seven colors of the rainbow. Why are there seven colors, by the way, parenthetically? So some sources say, because we know that B'nai Noach, the children of Noach, were given the Zion mitzvot, the seven mitzvot for all humanity. And that's represented in the seven colors of the rainbow. End parentheses. But that's what a rainbow is. So explains Rav Moshe Shapiro. Why was this sign chosen? It was always there from the beginning of Bereshis. The Ramban says that as well. God did not invent the rainbow after the flood. But now God was pointing to the rainbow. He said, Noach, look at this beautiful, this beautiful phenomenon. Do you know how it works? It's only when it's dark and there's thunder and there's lightning and you can't see in front of you, only then do you have the opportunity or the possibility for the bright, beautiful colors of the rainbow to shine through. That's the neshama. The neshama of every human being, Noah, don't ever forget this, is that although you might just see blackness and you might not see those colors, the colors are there and given the right opportunity, and sometimes it's only through the falling, sometimes it's only through the darkness that we're able to shine forth. But that's the extent, that's the power of the human neshama. 
That was the message HaKadosh Baruch Hu was sending Noach. That's the message that we have, and here in Florida, very often, I was driving home today, took my, my second daughter, Bracha, to the doctor for a throat culture, which is always fun, and on our way back, we saw this gorgeous rainbow. And she tells me, but the kids in my class say you can't tell someone about a rainbow. That's a different discussion. But it was a gorgeous rainbow, and it happened to be, I told her, I'm going to be speaking about that tonight. Wow, Ashkacha Pratis, unbelievable. But whenever we see the colors of the rainbow, we have to remind ourselves of the message that Hashem was sending Noah. Don't ever lose faith in humanity. And this is the Mishnah in Perki Yavos. We'll end with this, one of my, my favorite Mishnayos in Perki Yavos. Don't ever disrespect or be disparaging against any person. Don't ever look down at anything. Because there's every human being has his hour. And there's nothing on this planet that doesn't have its place. I like to share this story that when I was in Michigan with my son Avram, and we're living on the, the seventh floor of Mott's Children's Hospital. That was the pediatric oncology floor. And we'd walk around the floor, and we'd look into all the rooms. Many of them had the doors open. And you see, all these children are laying in bed. What are they doing? Are they playing checkers? They can't play checkers. They're watching TV. And usually when you see your child watching TV, and they're like this, zombie-like, you think to yourself, why did I even bring a computer into the house? What was I thinking? I'm frying their brain, and you probably are. However, walking around the seventh floor of Matt's Children's Hospital, and you see all these children being distracted by watching television, the Mishnah was ringing in my head. Don't ever say that this thing is crazy. It has no place on planet Earth. Why was it invented? It could be we have to be a lot more careful than we are when it comes to what we expose ourselves and our children to. But you know the place for the television? It's on the seventh floor of Matt's Children's Hospital. That's the place for a television. We should be Zoha to learn lessons from this Parsha. There's a lot more that we cannot uncover this evening to follow in the footsteps of Noah, to shelter ourselves when needed, but at the same time, never lose faith or hope in humanity, and more importantly, never lose faith or hope in ourselves.